going to tackle a question today. Uh, raise your hand if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all. Follower of Jesus, awesome, most of you. Uh, the question we're going to handle today used to scare me to death. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? People, people ask me that question. <laughs> no, man. It's just, yes, he is. But then I, I never really could offer a good argument for that, and it used to really terrify me. Not anymore. Um, uh, over the years, I've realized that there's all kinds of reasons to know that, uh, and to believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And so that's, a, that's the question that we're going to deal with today. We're going to have a lot of fun. I hope you, had, you, hope you brought something to write with. If nothing else, then just to write down this statement that, uh, that I, I believe, I've put together, not just in the last few weeks, but just uh, over the course of a lot of years of following Christ and what the scriptures say, what the Lord puts in us and whatnot. And so I hope that, first of all, this is just profound for you. It certainly is for me, and uh, you find it to be an encouragement today. So I want to start here, though. Uh, when I was seven years old, uh, you can do anything with a cool shirt. I'm just telling you. <laughs> When I was seven years old, this was my idea of heaven. When I thought of heaven, I would have said that, it, that heaven was Saturday morning cartoons and Lucky Charm cereal. And, amen. <laughs> and I loved going to the gas station with my grandpa and getting a big bag of cinnamon Jolly Ranchers. Absolutely loved that. And that was my idea of heaven when I was seven years old. Now, here it comes. When I was 16, so just get it out of your system. Raise your hand if you graduated from high school in the 80s. Okay. That's what a mullet is supposed to look like, okay? That's, a, that's, an, that's not a haircut. That's an event. Like, it's, it's awesome, okay? Uh, my dad bought me, uh, and back then you could get these cars for really, really, for a lot cheaper than you can get them today. Uh, I drove a 1968 Super Sport Chevelle. And uh, for any of yeah, the motorheads, yes. Uh, so heaven was, for me, was being in that car with that haircut, screaming down the highway, and believing I was the king of the universe, man, it was awesome. Um, I was six foot five, 185 pounds of ridiculously skinny, um, but in that car I was Dwayne the Rock Johnson. It was, uh, I was awesome in that car. When I was 24 years old, I would say that heaven was uh, the birth of my son Jared. Uh, Jared the, sh the snowman showed up. Yeah, it snowed a foot and a half the night he was born, October 11th of 1996, and heaven was watching him come into the world and seeing my reflection in his face. Um, it, it gets me still today to think about that and realize uh, how terrified I was to be a young dad. And uh, I could not have known what a gift he would become and a gift he is today, absolutely. Uh, on my 32nd birthday, on my birthday in the year 2000, uh, heaven would have been the birth of my daughter, my little girl. And uh, she was delivered by a flight nurse in training. Um, and I had to fight to, keep, to prevent my wife from going into her wrath of biblical proportions because they, they showed up too late to give her an epidural. And we laugh about that now, but it wasn't funny then. You know, last week, my little Geordie girl became a teenager, and I turned 45. And uh, we ate lunch at Tommy, Tommy's Burger Stop in Spinard. Have you ever been there? Yes, I gave her a little ring to celebrate becoming a teenager. It's awesome. Uh, heaven has been the way my wife laughs. And those pretty brown eyes of her that still wreck me after 21 years of marriage. She's a football junkie, University of Texas fan to the death. Um, and the thing is, I, I, the longer I'm with her, I look into a face that's very familiar, and she still surprises me. And I love that about her. I love her. As my life with Jesus has deepened, and I'm learning more about his version of heaven, a heavy reality has emerged. I'm realizing the older I get that the, best of, that the best of what the world has to offer in the way of relationships, the very best, 
is a really a glimpse through the crack in the fence at the life that Jesus promises us with him in heaven someday. Uh, the life that we will get to enjoy forever with him. And I believe I'll get to enjoy that with him, my family, my friends, a whole bunch of angels, millions of people worshiping God forever, um, getting to do things. That's the heaven he promises. It's a place of forgiveness and healing. It's a place of purpose and work. Second Timothy 2.12 says that I get to reign the kingdom of Jesus with him. I get to work with him. I get to work with Jesus. And I imagine him the way he is, the way the scriptures teach. He's a Jewish a Middle Eastern stone worker and carpenter. Uh, he's the Jesus who wouldn't, have, who wouldn't have stood out in a crowd, the Jesus who wasn't pretty, and yet it was the Jesus who shocked people with the power of his words and the heat of his presence, that Jesus. And I look forward to him looking at me deep in the face someday and telling me, uh, as it says in Matthew 25, that I have been faithful. Uh, I look forward to him calling me his brother, and that's what it says in Hebrews 2, that he's not ashamed to call me his brother, and he will look at me face to face, and he will invite me into his rest and into his place of being with him in heaven. What a great dream that is. You know, the kind of heaven that I'm describing and the kind of heaven that I'm going to talk about today is only described in the Bible that you hold here. It's, it's, heaven is not a place filled with stuff and gratification. That's not heaven at all. That's not the, script, that's not the heaven of the Scriptures. And many, if not all, of the world religions kind of describe heaven like that. You know, it's kind of this big Dave Matthews concert in the sky where everybody's just kind of chilling, whatever. That's not the heaven he promises, and it falls way short because the concert always ends, right? You don't have so many songs. Rather, Jesus' version of heaven holds a magnificent connection. It's the promise of a magnificent connection to the way we're made to be with each other the way we're fashioned as human beings, these unique identities that will be together forever. And here's the thing. The Bible makes this really audacious claim. It makes a, an audacious claim that there's only one way into this kingdom. And it's one very narrow, jagged, tragic, costly, terrifying, rugged path through death into life in his heaven. And that only way, the only way that is provided is through the work of and in a redemptive relationship with Jesus Christ. So is Jesus the only way to heaven? Well, if we're talking about the kingdom of the one true God, the creator of all things, who will share his throne with none other, the God who gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel and the Jewish nation, the God of Jesus and all of his apostles and the redeemed saints who live by the truth of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. If we're talking about that heaven, yeah, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And I'm going to show you why. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible today, it's okay. I'm going to put it on the screen. And, uh, but I encourage you to write it down. John 14. When I was in the seventh grade and things were uh, pretty rough for me, um, I used to read this verse all the time. John 14, beginning at verse 1 says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. This is Jesus talking. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So the Scriptures, it seems 
records the words of Jesus himself who claimed, to be the, who claimed himself to be the only way into the kingdom of heaven I talked about earlier. So how do we know that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And as I, as I work through this, I'm going to show you this whole thing, okay? And we're going to create a sentence that I hope you write down, and I, and I hope it will be an encouragement to you and something that you can go back to. Um, so, Nathan, if we can just show him that whole thing. This is the sentence we're going to work through from the bottom. Because the Bible says Jesus claimed to be the only way to heaven. He is or is not the only way to heaven, believe it or not. Let me say it again. Because the Bible says Jesus claimed to be the only way to heaven, he is or is not the only way to heaven, believe it or not. We're going to take that apart and start with the very bottom stone. We'll get, let's go over there first. Because the Bible says. Because the Bible says. You see, we have, to, we have to agree on an understanding here today, this morning, in 2013, the rain, all of that, okay? Right here sitting in this room, we have to agree together on an understanding of what the Scriptures say and something about the Scriptures to understand or even approach this question, is Jesus the only way to heaven? Because the Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. The Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. If you pick up a current version of the Holy Bible that is uh, accepted by scholars. This is an English Standard Version, a New International Version, a New, a new American Standard Version, uh, even a King James Version. If that Bible, this Bible, our Bible, is complete, it's trustworthy, it's authoritative, it cannot be divided, it can't be added to, and it's self-attesting. Well, those are big words. How do we know that? Well, consider the Old Testament. Let's just take the Old Testament. Did you know that for the last 2,000 years at least, even Orthodox Jews, even Orthodox Jews who do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah will tell you that the, that the Old Testament is complete and consistent in its message from the time of its writing. What does an Orthodox Jew today in 2013 believe about the Old Testament that I hold in my hands here? What will they tell you? Any one of them will tell you that the Old Testament has not changed since the date of its writing, which began 1,500 years before the birth of Jesus. The books of the Old Testament were written by a very select number of people who are very, very important in Jewish history, and you know these names. Moses wrote the first five books and some others. Joshua, his successor, is responsible for some. Samuel, King David, King Solomon, historical figures and widely accepted literature are responsible for the writing of these books within the Old Testament. And these words have never changed since the time of its writing. And that's demonstrable, let me tell you something, that's demonstrable in a lot of secular literature that would love to prove otherwise. It hasn't changed. The very words of the Old Testament, moreover, are quoted almost 300 times in the New Testament. And while many things were argued between Orthodox Jews who believe Jesus to be the, uh, excuse me, Orthodox Jews who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus himself, that they didn't argue about that point at all. Jesus didn't argue with his most bitter enemies about the truth of, what's, of what the Old Testament says. They were all together on that. Follow me? Sometimes I'm not as clear as I think I am, so. <laughs> so G Jesus and the, and the Jews who denied him all agree that the Old Testament says what it says. Pretty amazing. Now let's go to the New Testament. A very select few people fit into a very, very unique category of people who wrote these books. All of the authors either knew Jesus personally, they either walked with him personally, or they, were close, or they were people who were closely associated with people who walked with him personally. Very, very finite list of people. And that exact list of books that I hold, this exact list in this Bible today, 
is the same list of books that was ratified by a, uh, a council uh, entitled the Council of Carthage in 397 AD. And they, all they took that list of books from the early church in the Mediterranean. This is all, you can find all this stuff. It's pretty widely accepted that that's true. Now, for perspective, you, we sit here today in this room, and that truth about this book ratified in 397 AD that happened 1,400 years before our U.S. Constitution was ratified in Philadelphia. 1,400 years. That's amazing to me. And yet it's exact wording in the original language, both the New Testament and the Old Testament. This is all substantiated fact. Th these words have not changed at all. No document in history can make that claim. No document created in the history of mankind can make that claim. A friend of mine told me that there are over 60,000 original manuscript sources to support what this book says, 60,000, and they date within 50 years of the writing of the material, okay? So where is this going? Well, the Bible means what it says and says what it means, and it hasn't changed. It's authoritative. It's complete. It's trustworthy. You can bank on it. It says what it says. Now, what does this have to do with whether or not Jesus is the only way to heaven? Well, if that's in question, if we can make this wishy-washy, uh, we might as well stand up and go home and believe whatever we want. If, this thing, if we can't say definitively that this thing says what it says, that this document says what it says about Jesus Christ, we may as well believe whatever we want. I wasn't going to say this this morning, but I'm going to say this. There, if you started counting all of the Hindu deities, the known Hindu deities, one per second, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would take you 10 and a half years to name them all because there's 330 million of them. So maybe one of them are the only way to heaven. See what I'm saying? So if we can't bank on this, we're in trouble. If we can't stand on this as something authoritative, we just, I mean, come on, let's just go to lunch and, and just kind of eke it out and survive the best way we can. I don't want to do that. So the scriptures give us a structure of principles, and we can construct a belief system in that about Jesus Christ. The Bible says what it means. It means what it says. Now, it gets a little bit harder when we consider what the Bible says. Okay, raise your hand if you're with me so far. I haven't just completely confused you, okay? All right. Because the Bible says some crazy stuff. It does. Among a lot of them, the Bible says that God exists in three persons. The Scriptures teach a doctrine of a triune God, three, Trinitarian doctrine. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What that means is that the Bible says that God exists in three persons. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. If you want the name of a resource that a lot of this comes from, and the title is very intimidating, but it actually is... It's pretty easy to read. It really is. It's written by a guy named Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M. Wayne Grudem wrote a book called Systematic Theology. It's huge. But it takes these topics, and, and he breaks it apart into what all the Bible says about each one of those topics. And he kind of boiled everything down to those three statements. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. If it's confusing and kind of gives you a headache, that's okay. There have been a lot of human explanations to this understanding, and ultimately, we have to, the best we can get to is that it, it's a paradox. It create, it's a gap. And we feel things about that because we've got to fix everything, right? We've got to understand it all, put it in a box and make sense of it. But we can't. It doesn't, 
fit into a box that we can conceive of easily. Now, the best way I can think of to describe this, um, what this is like for me personally in my own walk with Christ and, and how I apprehend paradoxes in scriptural truth, it's a lot like sitting down to a plate of food when I'm famished, hungry, and the food's too hot, okay? Uh, has that ever happened to you? Like, I am, I, am, I, I mean, I'm, I could eat anything. I could eat the table itself. But when I sit down to a, a plate of food that's too hot, well, you've you got to pace yourself, okay? My son is hilarious. Um, he trains for football, and, uh, and he's always trying to gain size, but he's always had this gigantic appetite way before he started playing football. He holds the record at his elementary school of being the only kindergartner who can consume an entire Costco pizza by himself. Um, he's very proud of that. Well, a while, <laughs> a while back, um, my wife made this fantastic lasagna. It was awesome. And uh, my son roared into the house after practice, and, and, you know, I always have this romanticized version of what it's, it's supposed to be like when he comes home. Hey, Dad, great to see you. How was your day, man? Big hug. Well, tell me about what's going on in your life. Mom, great to see you. Wow, I'm so glad you're my mom. And then, you know, his sister, whatever. None of that ever happens. It's one word, food. This really happened. So he sat down at the table in front of this gigantic plate of lasagna that was the temperature of molten lava. And, uh, and he just took a big spoonful and shoved it in his mouth, and he spent five minutes banging on the table trying to swallow this without it melting its way through his face. And... Uh, yeah, I don't know, I understand it all. But when I consider thick biblical truth that it's foundational to my belief system, hear me. When I consider thick biblical truth that's foundational to my whole belief system, that's what it's like. I'm hungry, I want the food, the food is good, but I can't get enough of it, and it's too much because it's too hot. I mean, you follow me? That's what it feels like. That's what a paradox feels like. So we just, I mean, it's okay if we writhe around in pain a little bit around this, right? So how do we know that God exists in, how do we know that God exists in three persons, that each person is fully God and that there's one God? Well, we got to go back to what the Bible says. Genesis 1.26, here's some sentences from the Bible that speaks to God's, to both God's singular nature and his plural nature. If it gives you a headache, it's supposed to, okay? Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man in our image. Genesis 3.22 says, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Genesis 11.7 says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. Isaiah 6.8, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Psalm 110 verse 1 says, "The Lord." This is King David talking. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. Jesus would go on to reference that exact verse when he points out to the Jewish scholars who all agreed on the Old Testament, he would point out to the scholars and the priests, the chief priests, that King David is referring to God the Father as the Lord, God, God the Father as God, and Messiah as Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, both references are to God. This is God the Father commissioning God the Son as God. Is it hurt yet? It's crazy. John 14, 16 confuses the matter even more because Jesus promises that after he departs his disciples, he will ask God the Father to send the helper, the spirit of truth, a reference to God the Spirit. Jesus, 
God the Son, petitioning God the Father to send God the Spirit. Now, I could go on and on. I mean, the Bible is full of those kind of references. My point is that the balance of scriptures as we have them today that have not changed since 1,500 years before the beginning of their writing, 1,500 years before Jesus was born, teach that God exists as God the Creator, the origin, God the Father who is fully God. God exists as the spirit of counsel and wisdom and teaching and conviction, and this spirit is also fully God. And God exists as God the Son who executes the will of God the Father in the power of God the Spirit. And God the Son is fully God. All right, now I'll stop. It gets tougher. Sorry. Because the Bible also says, and this is where this is where the plot thickens, okay? The Bible also says that Jesus claimed to be, Jesus claimed to be that incarnate Son of God. A member of the Trinity existing as God fully. Jesus claimed to be God the Son, the only way to heaven. Two more stones on our little illustration here. Because the Bible says that Jesus claimed to be the only way to heaven. You got that one, Nathan? There it is. Because the Bible says Jesus claimed to be the only way to heaven. Here we go. Take a look at uh, Luke chapter 4. Now, I'm going to talk through this story. I'm not going to read the scriptures, okay? Just write down Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. I'm going to talk through this, okay? It's really in here. Trust me. Great story. Jesus comes back home to Nazareth. He's just started his ministry. He spent 40 days out in the desert being tempted by the evil one. And his hometown has heard that he's done some stuff out and about. So he's back home. He's a young Jewish rabbi. He's about 30 years old. Everybody's glad to see him. So he's, he grew up in, his, in this church, okay? He's back at his home church. And on the Sabbath day, he walks into the temple, and it says, as was his custom. He, it was, everybody recognized him. It's Jesus. We all know him. And it's his turn to read the Scripture that day. They did this every week. It's on the Sabbath day, somebody would stand up and read a portion of the Old Testament, the words right out of the same Bible that we hold today. It's pretty awesome. So he stands up to read. And he belongs there. It's his home church. It was his turn to read the Scripture for that day. Everybody knows him, so they thought. And one resource proposes that Jesus had been all over the place, and they heard that not only was his teaching authoritative, but that he had done some miracles. So they're looking forward to see what happens. This is a hometown kid. Hey, awesome. It's Jesus. So it says in Luke that, in the book of Luke, that it just so happens that they hand him, it just so happens they hand him the scroll with the book of Isaiah. Same one that's in your Bible today. Now get a picture of this. This is Jesus everybody knows. Stone worker, carpenter, construction guy. Great to see him. Been a Jewish custom for hundreds of years. They all knew the scripture backward and forward. Nobody gives it a second thought, just as if I read a Bible verse to you today. And he finds, he goes to the scripture he goes to the place in the scroll where uh, goes to where it is today. It's, it's Isaiah ch- chapter 61. And this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now get a picture of this because he rolls the scroll up, scroll up. He rolls it up. He hands it to an attendant who was standing next to him, 
And he sits down and everybody's watching him. We got another song or something? I mean, this is the next thing out of Jesus' mouth. It's all in there. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They still don't know what's going on. He's been away from home, preaching, healing in other parts of the country. They heard about it. People, they're excited to see him again. He's back home preaching in his home church. He probably editorialized the Scripture a little bit, talked about it. They were amazed by his authority, by the power of his words. They're in the middle of a church service. Don't give it a second thought. Jesus continues, and then the air grows tense because now he's talking to them. And he says this, doubtless you will quote me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did in Capernaum, other parts of the world, do here in your hometown as well. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. There were a lot of widows in, the, in Israel in the days of Elijah, and he went to none of them but to a foreign widow. There were a bunch of diseased lepers in Israel when Elisha came, and Elisha went to none of them. The people in the synagogue are not stupid. Now, we don't know what's going on culturally here, sitting here today, so I'm going to tell you what happened because they knew exactly what he was saying. And this is what it was. This is what he asserted in the course of what could have been just a couple minutes. First of all, that he's a prophet. Second, that he was equal in authority and power to Elijah and Elisha, two very, very important Jewish prophets. He's also comparing Israel's refusal of those prophets to their apparent refusal of Jesus as he's talking, standing in that room, which means that he just stood there in church and claimed to be the Messiah himself, the incarnate Son of God, and God himself. They freaked out. The last thing they would ever expect anyone to say in church, God said. They didn't see it coming. It was a, he, he is asserting that he, is the, that he himself is the fulfillment of these scriptures they had read a thousand times from the time they were little kids. Jesus himself claimed to be the deliverer of Israel, the Messiah, God incarnate. They tried to kill him on the spot. It says they dragged him out of the church, out of the synagogue. They took him to the edge of a cliff, and they were going to throw him over. What's funny is that it just says that Jesus went through them on his way. Like, nah, no, not today. Interesting side note. So here's the hometown boy talking in church. By the end of church, he's a heretic deserving of death. So what happened? What's the big deal? He claimed to be God. That was the big deal. Jesus claimed to be God. John 8, 58 is another uh, instance of this among many instances. Jesus actually says to the Jews, before your father Abraham, before your father Abraham was, I am and he actually used the name of God for himself, and it's a reference to Exodus 3.14. No wonder they freaked out. His claims are outrageous, but make no mistake, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, a member of the Trinity, God himself. And in a broader sense, if you read all the Scriptures and just spend a lot of time just looking at what all the Scriptures say together, they all point to him as the glorified Son of God, God incarnate, God himself. So the Bible means what it says and says what it means. It teaches a Trinitarian understanding of the nature of God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that Jesus himself claimed to be that incarnate Son of God, the Messiah, the only way to heaven. Okay, why is that so important? I mean, Costco pizza sounds good. We could go do that. Lasagna. I mean, I get it, but it's okay. It's just church, right? Well, what's the big deal? 
Well, here's what I think. I think I think it's one thing for us today, especially in this country, and kind of the way we do church in general. Um, and we kind of live in this. We kind of, we live in a society where everybody kind of thinks that any kind of truth is okay, and we kind of do what we want, right? Here's the problem with that: that because I think it's one thing for a lot of world religions. Uh, it was kind of funny. I was sitting with my boy and a couple of his football buddies, and I was actually sitting at lunch with my son, follower of Christ, Muslim, Mormon kid. Very bizarre, okay? I think that if, we, if I was to open this up with those guys and say, well, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? That's not, that's not hard to get around the corner, to say that Jesus in a real general kind of... Um, broad sense that he's the son of God. Okay, that might be another way to just say he's a prophet, good guy, did some cool things while he was here and all of that kind of thing. I think most people will get to the point where they say Jesus is a son of God. But here's the deal. It's an entirely different matter to commit to an idea, to commit to the idea that the Bible teaches that the historical Jesus said about himself that he was God the son. That's a whole different deal. That'll get you killed in some parts of the world today, that Jesus claimed himself to be God the Son and that I believe that, that we believe that, that we've apprehended that truth and that we'll stand on that and say, you know what, scriptures teach it, but even more than that, I know that it's true inside of me. Jesus is God the Son. Totally different thing. God made flesh living among us, God the word of truth, God the way, the truth, the life. God, Emmanuel, God with us. You can't, you can't get into that halfway, see? And what's even crazier is that that fact is substantiated by the Bible and a lot of literature external to the Scriptures that, that Jesus made that claim about himself. Why is that such a big deal? Well, we're at the heart of the matter. Because if the Bible says, and I'm going to say this a couple times, if the Bible says what it says, if the Bible says what it says, and if the Bible teaches that God is three persons, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, and if the Bible teaches that Jesus claimed to be God the Son and a member of the Trinity, then we cannot say that the Bible teaches anything other than the truth that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Let me say it again. If the Bible says what it says, and if the Bible teaches that God is three persons, Father, Spirit, and Son. And if the Bible teaches that Jesus claimed to be God the Son and member of the Trinity, then we cannot say that the Bible teaches anything other than the truth that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Brings us to this fourth stone on this little pile of stones we're building. He is or is not the only way to heaven. Because the Bible says that Jesus claimed to be the only way to heaven. He is or is not the only way to heaven. There's no in-between. And Jesus says about himself, I am God the Son. I, there is none other. I am the way, truth, and life. There is no way into the kingdom of heaven but through me. Game over. I'm your destiny. But it gets tough because to believe anything less, this is where this goes. 3,500 years of history in this book. This is where that goes. To believe anything less is a complete denial of the foundational truth of this book. Might as well throw it out. Can't have it both ways. 
drives me nuts. People taking pieces of truth out of this book and creating some kind of moral structure around that without taking all of it, I want to beat them up. Sorry. You didn't hear that, Ty. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We digress, right? You got to take all of it or none of it. And I love that. I really do. Jesus claims about himself make absolutely no room for another way into the kingdom of heaven. No room. We've got to take it all as true or claim that all of it is false. Jesus is the only way into the kingdom of God because he is God or he's a crazy fool. He was wrong. We throw it all out. Now, let's put it all in its place this morning because it's kind of fun to bat this stuff around, but if it, doesn't, if it doesn't sink into us and change something inside of us or do something to us to encourage us forward in our faith and growth and all of that, um, then right, it's been fun, but I don't, know how, I don't know how substantive it's been. On a side note, I, I actually preached this message last week over at the other campus, and uh, a young man came up to me afterward, and I, I, can't, I don't remember his name, but he had, I really admired his tenacity to come and, and challenge this, uh, and he did, and he did it in a very gracious way, and I, I love talking about this stuff, and I hope you know by now that, I mean, the reality is because of the authoritative nature of this, and if I decide to jump into this and, and commit to it, I'm free. Like, I don't have to prove anything else. Whatever. And he came up to me, and he had actually written down in the native language uh, passages out of other religious books that I've never looked at and said, well, what about what this thing says? Because this, this individual claims to be the one true God. And I said, I'm sure he does. Absolutely. So, well, what about this one? I said, well, yeah, of course. There's be a lot of false teachers. It says it in there. I didn't say that. but Because, see, I don't have to get in a fight about it. And he says, well, okay, so why, why did you choose to become a Christian then? Like, why did why do, why do you choose Christ? And I, I, I promise you, this fell out of my mouth before I even, <laughs> before, I didn't have time to think because it's like, you know what? I know Jesus lives in me, and I know I'm different than I used to be. So I just looked at him, and I was standing there with a cup of coffee in the lobby, and I said this to him, and he looked like I'd punched him in the mouth. It was crazy. I made this statement to him, and he said, I've been all over the world. I've been studying world religions my whole life, and I've never heard anybody commit to their faith like that. And I just said something. It just kind of came out of me. This is what I said. It's probably not going to sound like that big of a deal. But I just looked at him, and I said, well, the reason I've chosen to follow Christ is because there is subjective change that's taken in place, of me, taken place inside of me that can't be accounted for out of my own strength. And he literally looked like I'd slapped him. It was weird. Somebody says, I mean, I've heard this said before, it's not about you being in the Word. It's about the Word being in you. I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the reality is, my friends, that if Jesus is who He says He is, then here's the reality. He was present at, this Colossians 1 says this, If Jesus is who he says he is, then he was present at the moment of creation 
and present at the birth of the very first star, if he is who he says he is. And that means that he was present at the creation of the very first man and woman. He was there. He was present. And what that means in this room today is that he was present at the moment of your conception. He was there. And that means that he's present for every moment of your life from then to now and from now until you leave this earth. Present. He's there. If he is who he says he is. The good stuff, the terrifying stuff, the grievous stuff, the hard stuff, the painful stuff, all of it. He's there. I've said this before because it's become such a uh, I really believe it's become probably the most foundational truth in my whole life in the last five years or six that I fully believe that when he took the beating and the whip and the nails and he was and that happened that's like a substantiated historical fact that when he went through all of that and he's hanging on the cross and he's breathing his last and he's forgiving all these people who couldn't see him, that killed him for nothing, really, that he's hanging on that cross, and he, he knows me. I mean, you sit there in your chair today and put your name in that blank. You have to commit to that truth. Jesus is who he says he is. He's had your name in your mind. So every breath you take up to now is present in every breath you're going to take from now until the time you breathe your last. Present. Or he's a liar. I don't think so. What's awesome about that is that you could be sitting here wealthy, poor, full, hungry, You could be sitting here wounded, addicted, alone, suicidal, afraid, hopeless, regretful, looking back over the expanse of your life and regretting it. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. It it doesn't matter if Jesus is who he says he is because 35 years of history in this book, if it's true, that means that all that this book says in 3,500 years of history And the will of God himself is inclined toward you as an individual, an identity created by God in his image, made for much, made to be great, made to be an emissary of his kingdom, made to to carry his message into other people's lives, made made to drink in his message to you for yourself. I don't know if there's anything more astounding than that, that the will of God himself paradoxically The will of God himself is inclined toward all of mankind and you sitting in that chair today and me standing on this stage today. I know it's true. How do I know that? Because I just do. Ask people that were close to me seven years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. There's no way I'd do it on my own. No way. So the question is not, the reality is, the question is not really 
whether Jesus is the only way to heaven, because the body of this amazing book and the Spirit of Christ alive in any redeemed saint makes that clear. The question is whether or not your pride will prevent you from joining him in heaven someday. Hear me closely. Not because you are worthless. That your pride, will, your pride, my pride, will prevent me from being in heaven someday with Jesus Christ because I didn't really believe that I was worth it. That he really could love me that much. That he really could count me that valuable. You follow me? We do a great job of beating ourselves up we have a very difficult time looking at ourselves as being valuable enough to receive the, the word of, and word, not just the word of God, but the will of God inclined to your heart, to my heart. So the last one on this little pile of stones is because the Bible says Jesus claimed to be the only way to heaven. He is or is not the only way to heaven, believe it or not. Believe it or not. So there are two realities for us sitting in this room. If you are a redeemed saint and you know who you are, if you are a redeemed saint and a Christ follower, I hope you've been reminded of your heritage today, who you are. A dear friend and a mentor of mine, we were sitting in, a, in his office a number of years ago, and he looked at me and he said, you know, Lee, you're the reason why the rapture hasn't happened. Why do you think that is? What do you think I said? I know. Because I'm a screw up. <laughs> Somebody told me one of the most encouraging things I've ever heard in my life, and it's for you. That's why I'm standing here saying it, because it's for you too. He said, no, Lee, the reason why the rapture hasn't happened is because God's pretty convinced if he leaves you here, he'll get a few more back before all this is over. Destiny, man, he'll get a few more back. He's withholding judgment. Leave you here, get a few more back before all this is done. Man. So if you're a redeemed Christ follower, hey, that's who you are. If, you're, if you've not received Jesus Christ into your life as your personal, absolutely personal Lord and Savior today, and one of the evidences of that is if I've been standing up here for the last half hour or so and you have no idea what I'm talking about, like it just doesn't hit you. That's okay. There's a scripture for that. It says that the gospel is foolishness to the perishing. It's Chinese, and I don't read Chinese. You know, it's German, and it's just kind of whatever. If that's happening to you as you sit here, okay, well, maybe God is inviting you. So if you've not received Christ into your life, I hope that you will accept him as your way and truth in life and the way into heaven. And you can. It's easy. I'll show you how. And here's what you're going to find. The moment you give yourself to him, the moment. It's what happened to me. Long, long, long time ago. Your place in heaven is secured because he stamps you with his righteousness and he does it. You can't undo it. My kids cannot unmake themselves my children. Follow me? They're my kids. I take my wedding ring off. I'm still married to Karen, my wife. She's my wife. The two of us are one flesh. 
She's my wife. It's like that in the, in the kingdom of God. You get invited into his kingdom. He changes you on the inside, stamps you with his identity. It's done. And I get to be with you in heaven someday. We get to reign his kingdom with him. It's awesome. Great dream. So we're going to take communion here in a little while. And the, and the reason why we do that is because another, well, among the many paradoxes that Jesus taught is that Jesus stands as uh, in a place that no other uh, figure in any other world religion stands, is that he stands between God the Father as God the Son, existing as God the Son in, incarnate, flesh dwelling among us. He stands in this impossible paradox and becomes atonement for us. Not just to give us a pass. That's not what it's for. Anybody who's been following Christ for any length of time understands conviction. It sucks. It's hard. Can I say that here? Is it okay? All right. I can't unsay it, so <laughs> I just apologize. <laughs> Jesus stands between these, in this impossible gap between God and us and is atonement for us. Why? So that God can come be with us again. Because God the Father is completely holy, and if, he, and if something unholy is in his presence, it gets fried. It can't stand. So Jesus stands there and, and covers us so that, God, so that all of God can be with us. That's crazy, but that's the whole purpose for Jesus coming. God made flesh to be atonement for us. It's just staggering. So the reason we take communion is because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and he said, I'm doing this for you. Remember me. And he took the cup after supper and he said, if every time you drink this, remember me, because this represents the blood that I'm shedding for you. It's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why? We take the sacraments and we observe communion as a, as a means of saying, yes, I believe fully that it happened because I cannot account for the change that's happened in me of my own accord. I didn't do it. He did it. That's why we observe communion. So I'd like you to bow your heads if you would. And I want to speak to you if uh, you're not sure if God has done the work or if you know that God has done the work and everything that I'm saying is coming out like a different language and you don't get it. Just close your eyes. And this is the prayer that you can pray today and be stamped with the righteousness of Christ and sealed to him. It may sound like something like this. There's nothing wrong with you borrowing this prayer. If you can't find the words, it sounds something like this. Lord, Jesus, I am so tired of being my own solution. I am so tired of being the hero in every story I make up about myself. My solutions do not work. I have absolutely no power. I, I can't do this anymore. And so I don't understand what that guy is saying, but I sure want what these people have. And uh, I invite you into my life to be my Lord, and I'm accepting that, that whatever it is he's talking about will cover me and that you will just invade my life and that you'll begin to show me a different way and that you will be my way. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, um, I look forward to seeing you someday in heaven. I look forward to seeing what the Lord will do with you uh, between now and then. And uh, for the rest of us, I'm just going to ask you to stand if you would. And 
pray for all of us. And, uh, and then we're going to worship through a few songs, and then we'll go observe the Lord's table together. I'm thankful, Lord, for the freeing power of your truth. I'm thankful that you chiseled your way into my life and saved me. I know that I'm not alone in that uh, here today, that you found a way that you reached across eternity, really, and, and reached, and, and you had my name in mind, and you, with great passion, with great anger, with a great jealousy, moved toward me and invited me into life with you. And I don't, we don't get it why you chose us, and, but I'm grateful today with my friends that we, that we accepted that truth and that you're changing us from the inside out as the result. And so um, as we sing about you, the Messiah, the name above all names, um, the blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel. Uh, we, we celebrate the truth that you came, you lived, you died, you rose again, and you live today, and you stand next to the Father in heaven, and you make intercession for us, and you left us your spirit uh, when you left the earth in bodily form, and that spirit convicts, convicts us and teaches us and changes us. And Man, it's awesome. Grateful for it. So we look to you today as the author and finisher of our faith, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.